This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder with them to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Would you like to eat vegetables that have the best flavour and are the highest in nutrients? The secret is, the tastiest and healthiest veg are those we can grow ourselves and not those created for a long supermarket shelf life. Starting out can feel daunting, but trust me, you really don't need much more than a pot of compost and a pinch of enthusiasm to get going. And we've got expert help to take you through those first steps with plenty of extra advice for those already growing their own. Hello, I'm Miranda, and today I'm chatting to Pippa Greenwood, veg-growing expert and regular panellist on BBC Radio 4's Gardener's Question Time. I started by asking her why she thought someone should start growing their own veg. I think it's, you know, any form of gardening is good for you in terms of your head, your body, your outlook on life. But if it's something you can eat as well, then the rewards are so sort of concrete, so definite. And it's, you know, there are so many things we do now that are made so easy for us that they always kind of lose their point. I, I was in a supermarket recently and I saw... I've sort of got used to the fact you can buy ready um, chopped and peeled carrots, although I always worry what they've treated them with to stop them going brown. But when I saw ready sliced mushrooms, I really thought this is just so sad. And everything's sort of, it's just kind of there. And if you grow your own veg, that feeling of, well, immense self-satisfaction, which is nothing other than a, a really healthy feeling and that feeling of achievement and yeah, admittedly some challenges along the way, but a lot of fun and a lot of sort of using your mind in a different way to the way you would in your normal daily life. It's 
just so rewarding. And, and that's, of course, not mentioning the lovely, tasty end results. Oh, absolutely. And for someone getting into growing their own veg, what do you think every beginner veg grower should know or find out before they get growing? What should you know? Well, I think you should know that like anything else, it sometimes has ups and downs, including a note on those downs. But having said that, it has so many ups that you can ignore them. But don't let anyone tell you it's totally straightforward because it isn't. But having said that, it is so easy to tackle. And when you think about all the other things you do in your daily life or things you've learned to do for work or for uni or looking after somebody or whatever you might do sort of normally, the difficulties of of learning how to garden and how to grow veg are really tiny in comparison. So don't be put off by anyone telling you it's too difficult. Bear in mind, I suppose, that it's something you do for the enjoyment of doing it as well as for the end result. And, And make it something that you do for your own pleasure. Don't let anyone else sort of rule what you do or how you do it. Ask advice. And I think Anyone that's ever, you know, started into gardening relatively recently will remember all too clearly how helpful gardeners are. So whether you're on a new allotment or whether you're in your own garden and you're looking over the fence or someone's walking past in the street, they're going to have comments and advice. And listen to them because people who garden do tend to love passing on information and it's often really brilliant information. You might find sometimes it's all quite contradictory, but That's because actually you can often do something in so many different ways and it still works out really well. So I think that's the basic sort of the ground rules, as it were. But after that, then think about what you would like to eat and then work back and turn it into what you would like to grow. And some things are easier than others. So there are maybe in your first year or two of growing your own, I would say perhaps avoid some of the trickier things. But always make sure that what you're growing isn't what your parents, your neighbour, your kids told you you should grow, but it's what you know you're actually going to make good use of because that there's no point doing it otherwise. And I mean, it's lovely giving away some gifts, but it, you're really doing it for your own table as well. So grow what you want to eat. Bear in mind there's going to be a few problems. And if you think something might be a little bit beyond your reach, Don't feel bad about buying in plants. You know, it's a mixture of sowing things from seed, buying ready-grown plants. It's not a sin. In fact, it's a really good thing to do because it takes some of the time pressure off you, particularly if you haven't got the luxury of, of being in your garden or in your allotment all day. Completely. I couldn't agree more. And I think sometimes it's the more experienced gardeners that have the confidence to say, you know what, I don't have the time or space to grow that from seed. It's okay. I'm going to buy some yeah. beans as plugs. It's it's not a problem. Yeah, it isn't a problem. And I think it's really interesting because I do this veg growing thing on my website where people can buy the ready grown plants and they get my weekly advice. Now you might think, it's perfect for new gardeners. And indeed it is. If you've never done it before, you can't go wrong. But what's lovely is a lot of people that do it, do it year after year. And they know a huge amount about gardening, but they like the plants. They like the seasonal chat. They like that feeling. I mean, I'm always a great believer in being honest. So if it's an appalling year for butternut squash, I'm not going to be embarrassed to say my butternut squash are smaller than they've ever been or they've got spots or whatever it might be. And it's that feeling of knowing there are other people out there suffering in the same way 
or I'll be pleased to tell you when my butternut squash are bigger and more gorgeous than ever before. And then again, we can share in the glory. So I think it's really important, yes, to do some plant buying, do some seed sowing, do a little bit of both. Some things are much better grown straight from seed. Other things are a real bit of a faff to raise from seed. And if time is a bit short or you just haven't got that much space to grow your plants on, just do it whichever way works for you and, and enjoy it as that. I think that's it. You're right. It's space as well. And a lot of us don't have that many windowsills or that much. I've got like a little zip up <laughs> thing outside instead of a greenhouse. Yes. But it's not a walk of shame at the garden centre, is it? It's no. not a walk of shame if you're buying Absolutely some not. vegetables there are to so plant. so many lovely ready-grown plants out there in garden centres, mail order, whatever it might be that you might as well make use of them. I mean, after all, it's the same as I don't, as there's a lot of people would buy a packet of biscuits in, in the supermarket, no problem. Nobody's expecting you to make all your own biscuits from scratch, you know. <laughs> Put that sort of logic onto your gardening and relax and enjoy it. And that's the most important thing. If you had a friend who wanted to get into growing veg, what would you get them? What sort of objects or tools? What sort of tools? Well, I think it, it partly depends, really, I think, how much you want to do. So if you're going to raise a lot from seed yourself, then there is absolutely no doubt that having an electrically heated propagator is going to open up what you can grow and when you can raise it hugely. So you can raise a lot of, say, your own tomatoes from seed if you wanted, maybe some aubergines, some of the things that require a bit more heat and more controlled sort of conditions. So then with that, you obviously need a piece of capillary matting, which for some reason they never sell with the heated propagator. So a piece of capillary matting, heated propagator, some really good quality compost. And it is worth buying something that's that's decent. Whatever your personal requirements are when it comes to choosing compost, just make sure it's good quality. Then I'd say rather than big seed trays, I would go for pots or half trays or quarter trays because it's so important to remember that if you're raising things from seed you don't want to put more than one variety of one type of crop in any one container and so often you see these terrible situations where somebody's sown sort of three rows of um aubergines one row of um one type of tomato then there'll be a row of or two of beans or something and of course they're coming up all over the place at different times they need different conditions and you've got an absolute nightmare ahead of you so grow those small quantities of plants in their own individual containers don't forget to label them because uh Believe me, it's very easy to think you're going to remember what something is and then forget. So whether, I mean, I tend to use a combination of little wooden plant labels and as a family, we save lolly sticks. It's a, a great excuse for eating lots of ice lollies and, and uh, ice creams on sticks in the summer. You save them, you write on them with a ballpoint pen. It lasts the length of time you need it to last. So however you label them, label them well. So that's your seeds, really, I suppose. Then really a selection of, of basic gardening tools if you don't already have them. So a good quality fork, a good quality spade, definitely a trowel because you want to be able to do sort of finer digging. And I like what they call a transplanting trowel, which is one of those much narrower headed trowels with a quite a curvy head to it. Much easier than a stonking great wide thing that gets in the way of everything. Um, you definitely 
also, what else would I have? Oh, I know what I'd have. I'd probably have a rake just for leveling off the soil. That's rather lovely. Um, I would make sure I had a good stack of bamboo canes or whatever. And any that get broken, remember a wonderful thing to do with a broken bamboo cane is break it into two bits, say about eight inches uh, or thereabouts tall. Tie a long piece of string in between the two sticks and there you have your own planting line so that you can very easily, cheaply and quickly plant or sow your seeds in a straight row. And it it always makes, it's funny, I'm not a straight line person at all, but when it comes to veg, I absolutely love them in straight lines and I cannot, without a lot of help, create a straight line. It's so not in my sort of mental capacity <laughs> that I have to have a line if I'm going to do it. So you can do that. And then basically, um, I'm a great believer in things like micro mesh, very, very fine mesh, so that you can use that as a barrier to keep pests away. Uh, and any of the micro, micro mesh covered, you know, sort of pull out cloches and things are really, really handy because if you cover up your plants as they develop, making sure, of course, they've got plenty of light and the rain can get through. It's so much easier than trying to battle against the pest because if the pest can't reach the plant, then you've prevented the problem before it happens. So sort of a selection of things like that, I suppose. What do you find the micro mesh helps mostly with in terms of pests? Which pests does it mostly keep well, off? It's terribly fine and also quite tough. It's tougher than fleece. I mean, I like fleece for a bit of early and late protection and it, of course, will keep a lot of pests off. But it does tend to break more easily than this, which is like fine, I guess it must be polypropylene threads or something woven together. So it will keep out ooh, aphids, so your green fly, your black fly. It'll keep out flea beetles. It'll keep out, um, oh gosh, what we, it'll keep out butterflies and moths, obviously. So anything that might say, if you were growing a lovely crop of, of calabrese or broccoli, the last thing you want is it to be full of caterpillars so it'll keep out the cabbage white butterflies uh, but it'll also keep out bigger pests as well so things like the dreaded pigeon um, won't be able to get at it and if you've got say some strawberries growing and you cover those in micromesh or, or coarser net for those you can use it will also mean that although I love wildlife and I've been brought up to love and respect it I do quite like a good proportion of the crop's for the family to eat and I don't want to give them all away <laughs> so if you cover them you can stop things like squirrels getting at them birds as well so anything that doesn't approach from below ground if it approaches from below ground that's a whole different story and the thing about straight lines I completely agree with you I tend to like things quite natural but with veg mm. and you can tell your weeds you've got somewhere to step even haven't you if you've yes. <laughs> planted in and a straight hoeing, line you know weed control yeah. as well you know I think that's one good reason for spacing things out well is so you can get the head of a hoe or your trowel or whatever you want to use or your hand fork in between the veg easily without risking slicing the side off your garlic or whatever it might be. Oh, no, absolutely. So imagine we're standing in a brand new garden and thinking this is the year okay. we're going to turn Ooh, some of it into a exciting. veg plot. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking around this imaginary garden, what are you asking to figure out where's the best place to build this veg patch so i've got the whole garden to choose from have i mm. oh wow okay well 
bearing in, okay, we'll assume, shall we, that I'm only, my main interest is the veg, because of course, most most plants prefer sunnier rather than shadier, just to be very generalistic there. But there's no doubt about it, if you want a really good crop of most types of veg, you want somewhere that's a bit sheltered from the worst of the weather. I mean, I live on a very windswept hillside. So somewhere ideally where you can benefit from, say, a bit of wind filtering from a nearby hedge. Um, But having said that, you also want plenty of sunshine if you possibly can, because if you haven't got lots of sun, it tends to mean that you're going to really struggle with those crops that really do need more sun rather than less sun. So all your things like, you know, your tomatoes and so forth really don't like it if it's too shady and and most things won't crop quite as well. Which crops would you put in the shadier part? I mean, because there's always going to be on an area, the sunnier bit of the area, isn't there? Which crops would you put in the shadier? Right. Well, what I tend to do is I, if you know anything about the plant's origins, and I don't mean anything high tech, but you know that For instance, if tomatoes grow outdoors, they tend to often, slightly off-season, come from the Mediterranean. So that tells you they're going to love plenty of of sunshine. I tend also to make sure that anything that sort of needs ripening, so if we're talking about something, say, like like strawberries or raspberries, again, I'd I'd make sure they had a good deal of, of sunshine. But in terms of the shadier spots, then I suppose anything that's quite quick to grow and harvest, so things like your salad crops, um, lettuces, rocket, um, maybe some beetroot, whether you're harvesting them for the baby leaves or for the actual beets themselves, carrots. I'm not saying they'll put up with dense shade, but they really can do okay when things are a little bit gloomy. And again, beans, you know, you want a fair amount of sun, but whether you're growing dwarf French beans or whether you're growing lovely runners or climbing French or bolotti beans up, a, a, a teepee or a wigwam, um, then again, a little bit of shade is okay, but too much and it'll suffer. Oh no, completely. But it's it's that thing, isn't there? There's always the shadiest part of even the sunny space, isn't there? Yes, <laughs> exactly. I know. You can always try. But I think I think it's important that even if you haven't got anywhere that's in really good in a really good sunny position, you don't just give up on the whole idea totally. Do try and, you know, choose your crops with a little bit of care. But most things you'll get something, you just won't get as much as you could have got. Completely. So now we're digging into our soil and unfortunately our soil isn't so beautifully (laughs) dug over for the last 100 years kitchen garden soil. It's a bit clay. It's maybe in a new build garden. Is there anything you can do in the first year to improve that soil before you start planting or sowing directly? Gosh, do you know, I've never had a garden with an ideal soil. The first house we bought was so sandy that it was almost like trying to garden in a free-draining Sahara. And uh, the second house was clay with lumps of flint. And this house, which I've lived in for many years now, is extremely heavy clay. I mean, we actually made pots out of some of the soil when we moved in. (laughs) And you could make a proper pot like you might do at your pottery glasses. So very heavy clay soil and very strongly alkaline. Now, of course, if you're growing veg, most veg like a good degree of alkalinity. But the heavy clay is a problem. And I think one of the first things that you want to think about doing if you've not gardened before or if you've just moved into a garden is also building or buying some compost heaps. Now obviously you can't make homegrown compost instantly but whether you're using you know a hot bin or a traditional bin or just a heap 
you can gradually do so in various timescales. And that way you'll create some more organic matter that you can fork into the soil and that will help or you can layer it on the top and allow the worms to do their stuff depends on you and the amount of time you've got and how you want it to happen so i would definitely start making compost in the autumn i would make leaf mold and you can do that terribly and cheap cheaply and easily just four stakes into the ground make a, um, a chicken wire cage as it were around it open topped bung your leaves in hopefully having first of all chopped them or driven the mower over them so they've got a bit of um, greater surface area so they'll rot down quicker and you've got a bit of grass mixed in there and the moisture and the nitrogen will help it to go quicker all those things will help but if you want an instant effect I think you probably need to actually go off and buy or be given something to add and what we did here was incorporate vast quantities of well-rotted manure mm. and and it worked well I mean I still remember uh, we hadn't been here very long at all. I was extremely heavily pregnant, like, I mean, like a sort of hippo on steroids look about me. <laughs> and I was standing in the back of a farm trailer trying to ward off the biggest pigs I have ever seen, <laughs> whose field we were in trying to load up the manure, which we had been given. And um, actually, though, having said that, the only problem with pigs is their manure tends to be quite sticky. So if you do have a heavy clay soil, if you can go for horse manure, that tends to be better. But make sure there's not added things in it that you don't want, of course. Oh, absolutely. I think it's really helpful. And in the worst situation, you can grow in pots, can't you? If you're really struggling or raise uh, beds, is that something you would... Do you know, I think it's it's not a worst case scenario because for so many people, you've got a tiny backyard or you've mm. got a balcony and it's still really lovely to have some of your own homegrown crops. So... It's different. It requires a bit more effort because obviously those plants are contained. So they're totally reliant on you, aren't they, for their moisture and their food and everything else, really. But almost everything you can grow in a container if you've got good sized containers and decent quality compost. But always go for a bigger container rather than a smaller container. Make sure it's well drained, but also make sure there's a good enough volume of compost really so that it's not a total and utter nightmare to keep adequately moist i think that's a really fair point if someone is growing on a windowsill you know yeah. if they've got no space at all what would you mm -hmm. recommend to them sort of top three or four plants veg to be, to be growing in a windowsill so when you say windowsill, do you mean can we go outside into a window box? Or yeah, let's do a window yes, box. Yes, let's. I think we need a window box. Gosh, if I had a window box, I mean, other than the obvious things, and we could go on for hours about the boring sort of health and safety and don't murder your neighbour by dropping a window box on their head stuff. But let's assume we've got a well-secured, really good-sized window box. Then again, the first thing is, what would you like to eat? But let's assume you like eating most veg. You could maybe have one window with a really lovely herb container. So lots of free draining compost and a nice grit dress, top dressing as well. And then you put all your favorite herbs in it. So whether you want a, a basil plant, a bit of marjoram, maybe a small and prepared, be prepared to cut it back hard, um, rosemary plant or something, whatever your personal favorites are. And they'll all love the same sort of growing conditions which your veg plants wouldn't. So we'll have the herbs in one. And then what else should we have? Well, you could go for, if you like things like beans and you haven't got the space for those, there are dwarf French beans, which are relatively small and you only need a couple of plants. They take up, you know, reasonable bit of room, but not too much. Or you could have something like Hestia, which is a dwarf 
um, runner bean, which is very dwarf and doesn't need a support. So you could have that sort of slightly spilling over the edge, and it's a pretty little plant too. Um, something like a courgette, I definitely wouldn't try in a standard window box. I think it'd be very unhappy. But you could have carrots, and you know, I think they're the lovely ferny foliage of carrot is actually really attractive. I mean, okay, it's not going to have flowers on it because you're going to harvest it before it goes into that part of its life cycle. But you've got ferny foliage and then you've got delicious carrots that you can pull. You could certainly have beetroot. You could have wonderful salad crops. I mean, you think about how very varied the looks are of things like lettuces. Um, they can be frilly, they can be not so frilly, they can be roundy leaved, they can be almost yellow, they can be violent bright green, they can be richest purpley brown colour. And you can almost create a kind of a tapestry effect with lovely salad leaves. So a salad leaf one would be nice. And then, of course, there's plenty of tomatoes, which if it's a sunny, sheltered enough spot, you know, all the originals like the tumbling toms and all those that have come since them they're really good varieties and there's one called sweet and neat which Mm. is ridiculously small and when I first grew it I actually thought oh my god it's got a virus infection or something it was so ridiculously small initially but it grew into a really good compact sort of ideal for a window box type of plant and covered in plenty of fruit so most things you can grow even in that little window box Oh, it sounds lovely. All right. So we'll, we'll go slightly bigger than a window box. Let's say okay. we've managed to secure a little part of the garden, maybe six metres by two or something like that. Now we've gone to the garden centre, we're looking at seeds. And this is this is what I okay. do that goes wrong. And I'll take one of everything. What would you Ooh. say to that friend who's very tempted? They think like they're in the supermarket buying their shopping. <laughs> Which are the lazy, greedy ones you'd say maybe hold off? Like cauliflower takes a lot of space and you get one head. Uh, What are the vegetables you kind of recommend people with not masses of space to maybe avoid if if they're not in love with them? Okay, if you're not in love with something like a courgette, it'll take up approximately a metre squared per plant. If you vaguely like them, they are the most delicious thing to grow and they're not difficult. And but a lot of yes, crop, you right? You get a lot out of a courgette. Lot of crop. As long as you keep them adequately moist, when it gets dry, you'll get lots of female flowers and then you'll get lots of fruit. So, but if space is short and you really don't particularly like them, then don't go for those. If you do want something in that sort of family, though, you could always go for something like a squash because those are notorious for being really rampant, sort of triffid-like growth. In reality, of course, they go up as well as down. And if you train them up, then they hardly take up any ground space. So, I mean, the first year we moved here, I planted some butternut squash just after putting up the supports for the raspberries. And, of course, the butternut squash went straight up the raspberry (laughs) supports. And it was great because it didn't take up much space at all. And I had a really good crop of of butternut squash, and often they go on the fence here now. So um, butternut squash are good if you make sure you tell them who's boss and they go in the right direction. Um, now, this may sound mad, but I think one of the things that you really can't buy the equivalent of is homegrown sweet corn. The problem with sweet corn is, of course, so you need to grow it in a block because it's wind pollinated and you need to have, I really reckon, a minimum of a four by four block, so 16 plants. And if you followed the instructions on the back of the seed packet or the planting instructions that most people give you, you would end up with most of that plot taken up by your sweet corn. Mm -hmm. So 
I would say then do cheat a little bit. And I never grow mine as far apart as they tell you. I usually put the plants in about 30 centimetres apart only. And even then, I look at all that bare earth in between those sweet corn <laughs> plants. I just sort of can't bear it. First of all, it means weeds might end up germinating on there. But secondly, it just needs, uh, my whole body wants to fill it with plants. So you can always, with something like sweet corn that basically goes up for quite a long way before it comes out and takes up that sort of, or shades that ground space, you can grow quick, quick harvesting crops, things like lettuce and so forth in the gaps in between or you can do that um i always want to call it seven sisters three sisters things mm-hmm. where you have some beans and you have something like a squash and they actually use the sweet corn as a support so you've essentially in the one space you would you put down to sweet corn you're actually growing three totally different and very delicious crops so things like that sort of really help with space Um, But I think the other thing to remember is that if you don't sow too much of anything or plant too much of anything in any one go, you can often sort of see a gap developing and then sow, say, some more lettuce in there, if that's what you want, or some more beetroot. And so it's a case, a bit of plotting and scheming, but there are some things that love growing in containers. So I'm going to cheat and also assume that although you've only let me have this little (laughs) few metres by few metres on my sunny terrace or patio, that's where I'd put something like a little sweet pepper, one of the hardier varieties, or I'd maybe have a chilli or two, and I'd certainly maybe have a few tomato plants. And those plants all love growing in containers in a really sunny spot, so they'll benefit from, say, the heat from a sunny south-facing or west-facing wall next to this terrace that I'm suddenly developing in my head. I don't actually own one, in fact, but and then I'd have those plants there as well, sort of increase the space. Pippa, is there a name or cultivar for the hardy pepper you're mentioning? Well, what I really like is one called red skin. And that's, I'm not saying it's hardy in all parts of the country, but certainly if you're sort of Midlands or South or a little bit further North in the Midlands, but you've got a really good sort of sun trap area in your garden. I grow that outside at home. And I would say that, oh, it's not unusual to get a sort of smallish supermarket sized pepper or several of them, of course, on the plants. So I think that's pretty good going. And which are the easiest veg to grow and why would you choose them? Oh, gosh, what's easiest? Well, I suppose it depends how you want to do it. I think something, I mean, obviously the salad veg are very, very straightforward as long as the weather's not too hot. Something like your lettuces will grow really easily, but then you do tend to run into slug problems. I think something like uh, beans, runner, runner beans, climbing French beans, terribly easy because you either buy them in as plants or you plant them out as plants or you sow them a seed around your support system and of course if you bung in a few sweet peas it makes it a lot prettier as well and it makes it wonderfully perfumed and it brings in more pollinators so it's a win-win situation i think they're pretty easy tomatoes again you know raising tomatoes from seed if you haven't got a heated propagator or you've left it a bit late can be a bit bit trickier but some good outdoor varieties of tomato, really not a problem at all. Um, sweet corn, ridiculously easy. As you've noticed, I've probably, probably noticed I've got a bit of a sweet corn fetish. <laughs> so. <laughs> but terribly easy because you either, again, sow the seed direct or plant out small plants and you keep them 
adequately but not excessively watered and they just sort of sit there for a little bit and suddenly they take off and then they grow faster and faster and faster and then in no time at all you find yourself admiring those lovely little silks coming out of the top of the young cobs and then you know that excitement starts potatoes again terribly easy and um you know just getting them ideally chip them a bit let them form little short dumpy dark colored sprouts and then whether you're popping them into containers or into open ground other than covering the emerging shoots with soil or or, or compost um really you don't have to do an awful lot else with those either to be absolutely honest so I don't I think really most veg are not difficult to grow and a courgette or a squash again provided there's enough moisture you know because if if it gets a bit dry they tend to push their flowering towards producing male flowers which is totally useless of course what you need is lots of female <laughs> flowers and uh, and so as long as they're adequately moist that yes yeah, to say is very easy and it sort of gets on with itself oh that's a lovely list to get going with and Pippa, you have answered the questions of must be millions of people over the <laughs> countless years solving people's gardening problems. What has been the most common problem people have asked you about with growing vegetables over the years? Oh, I suppose. Can I have two? Mm-hmm. I think slugs and pigeons and then sneaking up behind their... Yeah, I'd say slugs and pigeons probably are the main ones. And what are the, what's the advice you give when people come crying about slugs and pigeons? Slugs, uh, and of course with slugs, it's it's a two-pronged problem, isn't it, really? Because underground, you've got them tunnelling to things like your potatoes and totally wrecking them. I remember the first year before I started using the control that I now use, sticking the fork into the ground so much full of anticipation about lifting those lovely potatoes. And suddenly I realised that what I had on the in the soil on the end of the fork was actually quite light. <laughs> And of course, there were literally little empty bags of potato skins. I I nearly said a rude word there. Slugs had tunneled (laughs) totally into the tubers. So there's that end of the problem. And then at the other end of the plant, of course, they will absolutely potentially devastate many of the salad crops and, and rip through the stems of something like a young courgette plant. So I think slugs really are, yeah, the number one. What can we do about them? Um, Well, I use the nematodes because I find they work really well. And there's no doubt about it, even if I don't use them every year, um, it actually obviously knocks the population of slugs sufficiently. And because they work underground, um, they're really, really good for veg crops because you can put them on. If someone doesn't know what nematodes are, how would you, what would be a a nutshell or... (laughs) Well, nematodes are uh, microscopic, worm-like critters. And before you shy away in horror at the thought of that, these are actually really good naturally occurring things, but they breed them up in in vast quantities. So you buy a packet of, of several million of them and you literally water them onto the soil. Now, it's a bit, I would say it's a bit Emperor's New Clothes-ish because you can't actually really see what you're doing. So you have to have faith. And you water onto the moist soil and then these... Uh, nematodes say microscopic worm-like critters will swim through the soil moisture and they will latch onto the back end of uh, of the head of the slug and they will basically then cause it to stop eating and then cause it to die and the great thing about them is and that's you know one of the reasons i absolutely think they're wonderful is that they they wipe out the slugs or they don't wipe them out but they really lower the population dramatically but they're totally safe 
So unless you're a slug, of course, when they're not safe. <laughs> but if you, in, in terms of wildlife or your domestic pets or your friends and family, they don't pose a threat at all. And so there's no nasty residues. There's no situation of, oh gosh, what's happened to the hedgehog? Because it wouldn't harm the hedgehog, even if it did eat a nematode infested um, slug. So really, really good and terribly efficient as well. And because they, they work underground, the wonderful thing is that they get all the little keeled slugs, which are the number one menace for most of us on the veg plot. And uh, also the slug dies underground. So you don't have to see the little bodies, which is quite nice as well. That's super. So that's you- my main thing. But I also am a great fan of copper tape. So if I were growing something, say, in a container or in a raised bed that I knew didn't already have slugs or slug eggs within the compost, I find that putting, and it's got to be at least um, two and a half, three centimetres wide, so an inch or so, self-adhesive copper tape around the rim of the container or the raised bed and providing there's no foliage flopping over and acting as a bridge or there's no foliage poking up and acting as a bridge in from the outside um, you'll find that it does with most slugs and snails in fact a really good job of keeping them out because there's something about it that they don't actually like crossing. And when do you put your nematodes in your watering can? Which month or months are you applying your nematodes? Yes, we like anything. They they are active and really efficient for a, a limited amount of time, but it's it's about six weeks or probably actually in reality a little bit longer. So I tend to time them really carefully. I would put them on to the soil just before I started planting out small plants that I'd raised in the greenhouse or I'd sent off for. So that that way you know that those small plants, when they're extra extra vulnerable, really, because they're so soft and tender, that they will be likely to be controlled. And then if it's something like potatoes, what you have to bear in mind is that most of the damage is done in the few weeks leading up to the time when you harvest the potatoes. So depending on which sort of potatoes you've got, work out roughly when you expect to harvest them. Then mark out on the calendar a point about six weeks prior to harvest. And that's when you put your nematodes on, because at that stage, the potato tubers won't be that big. They probably haven't been attacked yet. And yet you can then make sure that you've got a situation where you've got plenty of nematodes in the soil controlling the slugs when they'd normally be doing most of the damage. Oh, that's brilliant. And our friend, the less popular cousin of the dove, what do you recommend people do about (laughs) pigeons? Oh, gosh. Do you know, they've got to be so much greater in terms of the level of damage they cause, I think, in the last few years. And it's amazing how many lovely, calm gardeners that you come across. When you mention either slugs or pigeons, they get this kind of killer look in their eye and, and become very different people because they they are they can be absolutely terrible. So what do I do? I think that there's a few things. First of all, when you know you've got a crop that they like eating. And for for me, the worst things are always uh, beetroot and all the brassicas, but I'm not saying that's where it stops. I actually would then use netting held really taut, and it's important that it's taut because you don't want um, birds to get tangled in it. Even pigeons, who I love to get cross about, I wouldn't actually want to harm them. So if you've got taut net, then anything isn't going to get tangled in it, but it just means it can't get to it. So you can get you know, brilliant things that you can cover your crops with. 
either pull-out cloches or frames that have got netting already installed on them, or you can create your own, but something that they can't get through. And that works really, really well. And you can try, you know, various deterrents as the, the buzzing wire, which is basically almost like the inside of those, that thing from history now, you know, the, the audio cassette tape or the video cassette tape. It's, it's like the tape, almost like that sort of tape, held very taut and it vibrates and produces sounds which mostly tend to be inaudible to you and me, so they aren't irritating, but apparently are really unpleasant if you or a pigeon passing by, and so it tends to keep them away. You can also try and make your own deterrents. I mean, people do all sorts of things, from peeling oranges and leaving the peel there to look like a snake, which, you know, all these things have a limited eff- effective time, really, because after a while the bird realises that it's it's just some silly thing that human put there, and it doesn't work. But if you've got lots of things in your armoury, you can try your orange peel, you can try cutting out, pictures of a cat's head or a cat head shape and putting marbles in his eyes and leaving those to dangle on a piece of string near the plants. And just coming back to the why, why do we grow our own veg? You know, is there a taste difference for you? You've talked about chemicals. Can you taste the difference between the veg you grow and the stuff you buy in the shops? I, I, I think there's no doubt about it. When you go to the supermarket or the market or the farmer's market, Mostly varieties that are grown commercially, almost at any level, have to have a a very reliable sort of cropping threshold. They have to be relatively easy varieties. And sometimes when you're an easy to grow variety or a very heavy cropping variety, that can be at the expense of taste or texture. Not always, but quite often. So I do think on the whole there's potential for the taste and texture to be better. Texture definitely as well, because When you grow your own, you can harvest things as soon as you want to eat them. And whether that's, you know, making sure that when you pick your runner beans, you don't wait till they look like warped old brick bats. You pick them when they're young and really tender. And similarly with with courgettes. So many people say they don't really like courgettes. And I always say to them, well, try growing your own or eating one that somebody else has grown and you harvest it when it's you know half the length of those things that you buy that are halfway to being a marrow in the shops and you'll find that there's never any bitterness there's a much better texture so there is the potential for that and it's freshness too you know however good your local farmer's market is it it can't be as fresh as if you walked out of the back door and a, a few yards or even a few hundred yards or even a couple of miles to your allotment as it would be if you just picked it. So I think in terms of the quality, there's no doubt in my mind that it's superior. But I just think that it makes you feel so good. And to me, that's really important. It's that thing I mentioned right at the beginning about productivity and achievement. And, you know, I think there's very much this thing now, everybody has to be nice and polite, which is unless you're a politician, and then, of course, you can be an absolute swine. But in theory, everyone has to be nice and polite and not blow their own trumpet. Now, I've never been a great blower of my own trumpet, to be honest, but I do think that it's lovely to get a little bit big-headed about a few things. And I will come into my big-headed self when I can sit around the table with friends or family and say, oh, you know, do you like those? Those are the first of this year's French beans or, oh, this is a new variety of courgette. And it's a lovely feeling because you've produced something and you've done it out in the open air. And we all know how good good for the soul and the mind gardening is. 
And I think if you can add in something, you then sit down and eat yourself, eat with your friends and family, give away to your friends and family. It's kind of the perfect thing. And higher in nutrients. I mean, I always feel eating it straight from the plot. It must be better for me. (laughs) Well, there's there's differing opinions on the nutrient levels. And I, I would say, yes, if something's fresher, generally it tends to have, certainly with things like vitamin C, levels will start to dip on certain plants. Um, but in terms of nutrient levels, I, I just think, well, everything, I think the fresher, the better, and you've got the opportunity. And, and with something like, I'm going back to sweet corn again, <laughs> with something like sweet corn, there is absolutely no doubt about it because the moment the plant the moment you remove the cob from the plant the sugars in the individual kernels start being converted to starch it's a a chemical biological happening it can't be disputed and then of course you need a bit of starch in your sweet corn kernels but why do we call it sweet corn because it needs to be really ridiculously sweet and so every minute it's off the plant the sugar levels are decreasing so you know, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to something like sweet corn, it's essential to eat it immediately. Don't pick it the day before you want it, because then it's nearly as bad as the stuff from the supermarkets. You want to pick it and take it inside and ideally have the steamer ready for you to put that freshly denuded sweet corn cob on top of the steamer and get it steaming away. And it will taste like oh, so different from the ones you might have eaten before. I try and just harvest what we're going to eat. I always think the veg patch is the best larder as well for keeping veg fresh. Of course, absolutely. And there's nothing worse. You know, you think about things like bagged salad. A half of it's going off before it leaves the supermarket sometimes, depending on where you shop. Um, And there's no doubt about it. You then put it in the fridge, you have a little bit of it, and then you don't feel like salad the next day or there's fewer of you eating it than you thought there might be. And it just isn't as fresh. Whereas if you've got say and it could be on your doorstep a pot of salad leaves growing away you don't even have to put your wellies on you know you can lean outside if it's next to the doorstep cut what you want and it is totally fresh and you don't waste it because you've only cut what you wanted and the rest is there to get a little bit bigger for the next time you do what what is the key thing you're missing out on if you're not growing your own veg I think if you don't grow your own veg and you've got the opportunity to, unless you really don't like eating veg, and really the only person I've ever known who didn't really didn't like vegetables was the lovely John Cushney, the, the mad Northern Irishman that used to be on GQT with us, sadly now the late John Cushney. And he really hated veg. But if you like veg and you don't grow them. You're just missing out on this amazing experience of producing something yourself, which as you rightly said, was the best sort of larder or or vegetable drawer in your fridge, but you don't even have to use electricity to keep it at the right temperature. You're missing out on the most amazing experience because growing it is sometimes challenging, but basically really good fun. You can learn a lot in the process. You feel so good and it's so exciting. I still, after all these years, and I've been, you know, I was virtually brought up in the garden as a as a child. So after a very long time of growing things, I still get an immense kick out of harvesting and then eating and sharing what I've grown. And it's such a lovely feeling in your head as well as in your, in your mouth. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. 
And for more gardening tips and inspiration, why not try our new magazine subscription offer for podcast listeners at buysubscriptions.com forward slash GWpod. If you subscribe before the 21st of April, you'll get our May issue and a year's two-for-one Garden's Guide and Entry Card. You'll also find this special offer in our podcast page on gardenersworld.com, where we share more about today's themes. So, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time.